We're on the first floor of the Natural History Museum here in Dublin and there's a display case full of dolphin skulls um, over under the tip of a very large whale skeleton. And in that little display case with the skulls and some whalebone is a photograph. And it's a rather unusual item because most of our exhibits are dead animals, either skeletons or taxidermy. It is said that a picture paints a thousand words and what a fascinating tale this one has to tell. And we know it's the photograph of a blue whale that's stranded in Wexford. We have the reference number on the back of the photograph that tracks it back to an acquisition in the 1890s. And you can see the whale lying on one side. Its back is towards the observer, so a tip of uh, its tail is sticking up out of the water. It's in shallowish water. There's a small little dinghy moored up beside the whale. And there are five people standing on top of the whale. Nigel Monaghan is keeper of Ireland's Natural History Museum. And if you look really closely, you'll notice that the person on the left, who's nearest the tail, is on a rather narrow part and probably quite unstable, walking along and is holding a long stick. And if you measure back from that stick to some of the other characters sitting on top of the whale, you can see a line, and that line is no doubt a tape measure because we know that they measured the size of the whale, particularly its length. We don't know exactly who these people are, but there is this one person with a cap, usually a sign of authority and a gentleman, uh, with a tape measure. We don't know who took the photograph. They are simply referred to in the paperwork as a gentleman. And if you can imagine in the 1890s, anybody who had the equipment to take a photograph probably was a gentleman, or very rarely a lady, um, in that you're taking a photograph with a big timber box of a camera, like you might see in old Wild West movies, and there's a glass plate is the negative. So they actually had to prepare and paint a chemicals onto the surface of a glass plate entirely in the dark, carry it in a closed dark box, slide it into the camera, and then open the front of the camera, let the light in for a few seconds, close it off again, take the plate out back to the laboratory in the dark and process this image which is what we see in this frame in the museum today. It's thought that this female blue whale was migrating north when she ran into shallow waters and got stuck on a sandy ridge called Swanton's Bank. As news spread of her demise, people travelled from near and far to catch a glimpse of this monster from the deep. One newspaper described the whale as a strange visitant from strange seas. I've travelled to South Kensington in London, to the home of some of the world's most precious and fascinating historic specimens of life, earth and science. Britain's Natural History Museum, considered to be the preeminent centre of natural history and research in the world. Hi Derek, welcome to the Natural History Museum. I'd uh, like to show you our blue whale. Say hello to Hope. Hello Hope. Richard Sabin is the museum's creator of mammals, and he's just introduced me to a 25.2-metre-long blue whale skeleton which displaced Dippy, the famous Diplodocus dinosaur, as the museum's main attraction. And she, because she is a she, also has a name. Hope. We 
began conversations about making the changes back in 2014 and you know it was quite a surprise to everyone that Dippy was going to go you know Dippy was going to be taken out but we had to find a replacement specimen something that would engage people with the natural world but also allow us to talk about the science that we do at the Natural History Museum a lot of science going on here the authenticity was important too because of course Dippy is a replica Mm -hmm. this is what a lot of people didn't realize the specimen that we wanted to replace Dippy with had to be real it had to be imposing something large that could fill the space in Hinsey Hall but also talk about sustainability about origins and evolution and about diversity of life on the planet Whose decision was it to get rid of Dippy in the first place? Was it yours? I have to say it wasn't my decision to get rid of Dippy. I'm glad to say that was made by somebody who gets paid an awful lot more than I do. <laughs> above your pay grade, yeah, so to speak. Yeah, way above. <laughs> but um, I was instrumental in actually selecting Hope, our blue whale, as the replacement for Dippy for all of the reasons that I've mentioned, all of those criteria yeah. which we wanted to work to. And it wasn't, of course, just a new central specimen. It was everything in Hinsey Hall is new from top to bottom. Things from our collections that we brought out into the public space that we wanted to use to tell the story of life on the planet and the future of the planet. Hope is the same blue whale which appeared in the photograph shown to us by Nigel Monaghan in Dublin. You know, we've got this amazing lighting rig in Hinsey Hall and it allows us to change the colour of the architecture in here but also the colour of the whale. Now, as the day goes on, actually, the skeleton of our blue whale becomes bluer, more Mm. intense. And back in March of 2018, actually on St Patrick's Day, we washed the skeleton of hope in a green light and we put it on our Twitter page and actually we had messages from all over Ireland, Irish people from all over the world who saw what we'd done. And it was a great appreciation by them. Well, a fantastic idea. And you would have been a good company because monuments like Christ Redeemer in Rio de Janeiro goes green on St. Patrick's Day and other landmarks around the world do a similar thing. But there's good reason to colour this blue whale green Mm. because she is Irish. Absolutely. I mean, we call her the Wexford whale. Hope is the Wexford whale. Back in March, 25th of March, 1891, she appeared in the waters of Wexford Harbour. She was seen swimming against the current very, very um, heavy waters, and she beached herself on a sandbank called Swanton's Bank, which I believe is gone now. But she hit this sandbank and became stuck fast. Now, over at Rosslare, there was a, a lifeboat station, and one of the young lifeboat pilots, a chap named Ned Wickham, saw this blue whale, had mm-hmm. never seen anything like it. And he tried to approach the animal, but of course on that day the weather was very bad, and the other thing, of course, this young female blue whale was very strong at that point so it was very dangerous to try and approach her so Ned went back to Fort Rosslare he alerted his colleagues and they watched the whale for the next day on the second day on the 26th of March they were able to approach the whale now Ned Wickham was very very distressed we believe by the struggles of the animal by the second day of course she was a lot weaker she was starting to be crushed by her own weight Mm. out of the water that's what happens with these large whales and so partly out of compassion, partly out of probably a, a financial realisation that there was going to be money in the remains of this whale, Ned Wickham had fashioned a homemade harpoon and they managed to climb onto the body of the whale and Ned placed the harpoon under the left flipper of the animal and we think he may have struck the heart because the description that came from Ned and the people who were watching at the time was that the sea ran red with the animal's blood. Now, The whale died, and of course, at that point in time, given the political history of um, of Ireland, um, it became property of the Crown. The British took claim 
of the animal under the fish's royal prerogative of 1324. My goodness. Absolutely, yeah. So <laughs> the Crown um, became the owner of the carcass and instructed the local receiver of wreck in Wexford to sell the carcass to raise money for the treasury. So there was actually an auction, believe it or not, and the chairman of the Wexford Harbour Board, a man called William Armstrong, he bid in the auction and he actually purchased the carcass of the blue whale for £111. Now news had spread by then of course across Ireland and across Britain and across Europe and pretty much across the Atlantic to the USA that this blue whale had become available and several people were interested in acquiring it but chief amongst those was Richard Owen who was the director of the Natural History Museum, this great museum in London which had been open for 10 years, 1881 we opened. And what he wanted, Richard Owen wanted a blue whale skeleton to go on display Why here. did he want a blue whale? The blue whale, of course, is the largest animal on the planet, the largest animal that's ever lived. And Owen, who was a great anatomist, felt that we should have a complete skeleton of a blue whale to show to the public and also to add to our scientific collections. So here it was. Absolutely. And it just so happened caught in local waters yes. at the time. Yes, exactly. And it was a big job to process the carcass. Now, the interesting thing was... Once the negotiations had started between William Armstrong, who bought it for £111 with the museum, he actually sold it to the museum for £250, so he more than doubled his cash. (laughs) Some of the money went to Ned Wickham and his colleagues, and of course um, that would have been quite a sum at the time. I think it was £50 they received. And the story of the, um, of the whale, the story of Ned Wickham and his activities, and actually Ned Wickham, the man, a great local figure, a very heroic, um, it's, it's still a very important story in Wexford today. And we've been lucky enough to have contact with the, the relatives, the descendants of Ned Wickham. But the skeleton itself, once it had been purchased by the, the, this museum, it took several months for it to be cleaned. Local people took the carcass apart. They actually dragged the carcass of the blue whale off Swanton's Bank and over to the Raven, to Raven Point, and they took it apart. And it took about three months. Um, it caused a lot of smell, a lot of distress. There were bits of meat that were floating along the shores and disturbing rather more genteel people, I think. Um, the skeleton actually arrived in its totality by the end of the year in 1891, and it was officially registered by this museum in March of 1892. So it took about a year end-to-end for it so to arrive. So the Natural History Museum bought the skeleton. Mm-hmm. And the locals got the benefit of the oil and the meat. William Armstrong, we think, got the benefit of the oil. Oh, the I oil, see. Um, so was, he, he really made a killing. Oh, he did. He, he absolutely did. And um, the one thing that he could have um, kept hold of that we bought as well as the skeleton were the baleen. So the plates of baleen, which grow inside the mouth yep. that these animals used to filter their food, um, was highly prized. It was used in corsetry. It was used in, in furniture. It was used in all kinds of decorative inlay. So... It was a material that I think Armstrong would have wanted to keep and make money out of, but we wanted it for display purposes. Now, it was a great thing that we got that because the science that we can do today and the things that we can learn about the life of this particular animal just from those plates of baling. Well, you know, the baling grows around about the same kind of rate as our hair and fingernails. It's the same material. It's a a very simple form of of keratin protein. Mm -hmm. We use techniques now that can actually look at where the animal was living and what she was feeding on by the kinds of elements which have been laid down in those um, keratins, you know, uh, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen. This is real Sherlock Holmes stuff. It really is. And, you know, for me, it's science fiction because (laughs) I've been in the museum for 27 (laughs) years now. It's changed an awful lot over those years, and we're getting more and more information from the remains of these animals. So for the last seven years of Hope's life, we have a record in her baleen of where she was. Oh, where was she? She was moving seasonally between Iceland, the waters around Iceland and Greenland, 
in the summertime down to the Azores in the wintertime and of course moving through either the Irish Sea or the west coast of Ireland and it was actually routine that people could see large numbers of these North Atlantic blue whales moving past the west coast of Ireland. But of course that was the, the problem. We knew they were there and as the whaling industry started to develop in Ireland and in Britain more and more boats were going into the waters there and by the early years of the 20th century we decimated the population of the North Atlantic blue whale. Yeah, and they were a big catch. They were. So they were worth going after, weren't they, Absolutely really? Absolutely were. Yeah, they developed technology in the late 19th century, which they employed in the early 20th century, which meant that they could catch up with these fast-moving, powerful animals yeah. and, of course, make a lot of money out of them. We lost that population. We decimated that population before we had a chance to understand them scientifically. So using Hope's remains and the new scientific techniques that we employ at this museum and other institutions, you know, we can learn about what was going on with these animals back in those days and apply it to what we know today. A couple of things spring to mind. Now, you said that Ned Wickham saw her. She was in the water. Mm. She was struggling for two days before he eventually put her out of her misery yeah. for good reasons or other. Yeah. But I didn't think that blue whales beach themselves very often. It's a very uncommon thing. I mean, there so was, why would this have happened? Yeah, well, this is a good question. You know, we've been looking at the information that we've got from the baleen of this animal, and there's a suggestion that she spent rather more time in warmer waters in the months before she appeared in the harbour of Wexford. Now, she may have been weakened by this extra time that she'd spent in warmer waters. Why was she there? There's a lot of reasons why she might have been there in the first place. She was a young animal, a female, around about 15 years old. She was um, sexually mature, but not physically mature. So these animals, like a lot of uh, mammals, they become sexually mature before they actually finish growing. It may be that she had a a calf, that she was actually um, nursing a calf, providing milk to help that animal grow. And, Mm. of course, that weakens a mother that weakens the, uh, the, the, um, the whale and she may have been heading back north to start feeding again but she was in a weakened state she may have gotten into difficulties because of the, the rough weather conditions and found herself no in shallow water no possibility she could have been harpooned already and just managed to get away there's no record to, to suggest okay. that that and actually happened and of course happened. at that time no post-mortems you can't open her up on the beach exactly. and see what this animal died of but yeah. eventually died of a harpoon to the heart and the heart in an animal like this must be ginormous huge yeah there's, there's a, actually a heart of a blue whale that's been preserved at the Royal Ontario Museum in Canada recently and um, yeah they're not as big as a, as a Volkswagen Beetle as they, they often um, state they are but actually about half that volume so still a large organ and um, a huge amount of blood A huge amount of blood. So how could you weigh something like that? Because presumably when it's dead and it's been cut open or cut into pieces, it's all gone. But you couldn't weigh because you read all sorts of statistics about how long they are. Well, that's fair enough. You measure them from nose to tail or something like that. I'm sure you have a scientific way of doing it, you might tell me. But how do you actually weigh a creature like this? Well, you know, those data actually came from the early days of the large-scale whaling operations that started in the North Atlantic. And then once the North Atlantic populations have been depleted, moved to the South Atlantic, the uh, waters off the Antarctic and of course the whaling stations down in in the Antarctic region places like South Georgia they were taking detailed volumetric measurements weights lengths all kinds of um, uh, data from these animals to maximize the the economic value of them. But how did they do it? Did they cut them up into segments? Cut them up into sections and they used cranes and they had the kinds of scales that would use to weigh you know huge pieces of furniture or vehicles or that, that kind of technology effectively. Just give our listeners some idea of how large this animal is because I know they can grow to almost 100 feet in old money and what can they weigh 100 ton more? 150 tons 150 tons this North Atlantic blue whale the Wexford blue hope 
was measured at 82 feet. They probably go to around about 85, 88 feet in the North Atlantic. In the South Atlantic, they can be much bigger. But what we've got here is a skeleton that's around about 25 metres long. It's important to say that this animal, you know, 85 years ago, almost to the day, this skeleton was being hung in the whale hall just around the corner. So this is the second time this whale has been on display? Yeah. She was kept in storage after she arrived in 1892. They realised that they didn't have the space or the technology to properly display her. So she went into the research collections. Basically, she went into storage until 1933 when they started to um, install her in the new whale hall, which is just around the corner from Hinsey Hall. By February 1934, she'd been put in position. She was the first animal to go in. She was at the top of the hall. Mm -hmm. And then progressively, other specimens were put in place around her, and and she was lost. You know, you couldn't really appreciate the scale, the majesty, the the, the incredible um, anatomical scale of this thing. It was huge, absolutely huge, but it was lost. And by taking it out of the whale hall and bringing it into this beautiful space in Hinsey Hall, it gave me an opportunity to apply new scientific knowledge. Now, the pose that we have the skeleton in, Mm. we have her in a diving, mouth-open, flippers-out, lunge-feeding pose. And that's how they feed? This is how they feed. And I was fortunate enough to spend time out in the waters off California, Santa Barbara, observing these animals for a week, feeding, placing... Um, tracking devices uh, on their backs from a small boat. Having a 30-metre-long blue whale come up in the water next to you when you're in an 8-metre-long boat is quite a thing. But it gave me the opportunity to see how these things move and then put all of that dynamism into this pose. Now, the significance of selecting Hope for this space was really centred around the fact that in 1966, you know, the world realised that we were about to lose the blue whale as a species. The numbers had crashed all over the planet. Um, It was about to go extinct. So people got together and they said, stop. It was an international decision. Let's stop this. We can't lose the largest animal on the planet. There was a moratorium, a ban placed on the hunting of blue whales. Since that time, from just a few hundred individuals, numbers are now up into the, say, tens of thousands, 30, 40,000. So it's allowing them to recover. We're actually starting to see more sightings of blue whales off the coast of Ireland again going back into their old migration routes. So it's a story of hope. It's what we can achieve as a species, a human species, when we work together and say, you know, we're causing damage to the planet, let's live sustainably. Hence the reason for the name. Absolutely. And what a perfect name it is too, and what a beautiful specimen. It is, it's incredible. It's done exactly what we hoped it would do when people walk into the hall. And bear in mind now, since July 2017, when we unveiled Hope to the public, we've had millions of visitors. Millions of people have been to see the Wexford Blue Whale. And I've been fortunate enough to host the granddaughters of Ned Wickham and all of their relatives and have them here and show them the the specimen and go through the story and hear their stories and put it all into context. So as well as being a great scientific specimen, it has a great social history connection with Ireland. Any chance you'd give it back to us? (laughs) I think it's staying where it is for at least the next 40 years. (laughs) Ned Wickham was one of the first people to arrive on the scene back in 1891 as this magnificent creature was slowly suffocating. And as Richard Sabin has said, it was Ned who eventually put her out of her misery. Hi, I'm Liz Sheel. And I'm Mary Costello, granddaughter of Ned Wickham. By all accounts, Ned was something of a local hero, and his memory lives on through his direct descendants. Well, Ned Wickham was born in 1871, and he died in May 1944. He was married to Margaret Duggan and had six children three boys and three girls. Ned Wickham was the coxswain of the Wexford lifeboat 
so I, there was five generations of the family in with the lifeboat. He served from 1899 to his retirement in 1925, and he was based in the fourth on Rosslair, which later was washed away by the sea. So I, su- I suppose Ned is probably best remembered for an incident that happened in Wexford Harbour with a special big, big fish, as I saw it referred to, which is not really a fish at all, but it's a whale. It's a blue whale. And I have a letter written by a first cousin of ours, Raymond Wickham, which was written to the National History Museum in London. So the letter goes on. It says, on Wednesday, March the 25th, 1892... Mr Edward Wickham, an Irish fisherman living in Rosslare Fort, Wexford Harbour, noticed a commotion in the water. Mr Wickham jumped into his boat and examined the commotion from a respectful distance and at once perceived it to be something that would make even the angler's rest sit up and think. You've guessed it. It was a blue whale and a whale of a whale. It was stranded on a sandbank and at first definitely resented Mr Wickham. By the next day, however, it had lost much its vitality in its efforts to leave the harbour. That Mr Wickham was able to sail up and puncture it with an improvised harpoon. What a night there was at the Angler's Rest. Sold for £111. Subsequently, the British Museum authorities acquired it. Unfortunately, the whale was 82 foot long. And although, of course, there is a whale hall at South Kensington, the authorities had not got a vacancy that size. So for 42 years, the bones have been laying, so to speak, incarcerated in the basement storerooms at the museum. Recently, however... The completion of the new building was created and yesterday the Wexford Wonder, beautifully placed together with iron and paper mache, was hoisted onto an elevated position eight foot from the roof of the new hall. Mary, you remember your grandfather, yes? Well, very, very vaguely. I was four when he died. But there are two instances that he was honoured in. His courage was readily demonstrated in, uh, first of all, the rescue of the Puffin on the 11th of March 1906, when six lives were saved and Nick Wickham earned a silver service medal and a certificate from the King of Norway. In it, total, I read somewhere, I think he, he rescued over 100 people. Oh, over 150 people over altogether, 150. yeah, yeah. And there was an incident too in his house. He lived in Rosslare. He lived it? in the harbour, in the fourth in Rosslare. Yeah. And uh, the, in the fourth... There was, uh, there was about 20 houses, there was um, the lifeboat station, there was um, a church, and that fourth was all washed away very, very sadly in, in uh, 1914, on the 20th of February, when they were out rescuing people from the Mes- Mexico. Now, for that rescue, he, the nine crewmen of the feathered lifeboat lost their lives and Grandad Wickham earned a silver clasp to add to his medal for his valour at that stage. But when he came back, his children had been all brought up to Rosslare. So and there was a disaster the, in his house while he was away while he was saving p- other people. Yeah. yeah, it was really, really sad. But later then he moved into Wexford, 60 North Main Street, Wexford, where they opened up a restaurant and my mother and them ran the restaurant for a while. 
Did your mother ever talk about him? I don't remember Mum talking about him as such, but I know that we going on holidays to Wexford a lot, and the one thing that she did mention, and I think we all knew that after the 1914, I think, mm. the Wexford crew are the only people in Ireland to have received GAA medals yes, I, without yeah. playing uh, a, a GAA match. Yeah. Really, yeah. It was in honour of their uh, achievements yeah. and what they'd achieved in their rescues. Now, you, you did mention there in the letter of him going up and using the harpoon on the whale, but really that was because the, the animal, it was in distress and it was it, to put it out of its distress. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And we've we discovered when they brought the whale, which is now called Hope, into its new position in the museum. Um, the curator was telling us that he obviously knew where to use the harpoon mm-hmm. not to have caused major mm-hmm. damage or trauma. To the animal. To the animal. Yeah. Another instant when they were on the, um, at the Mexico with the tug got a hole in it and they had a loaf of bread they wrapped the loaf of bread in an oilskin and they plugged the hole. <laughs> and he had a hard life. His wife died, she was very young, and left him with six children. He did remarry to a clear giddy. And two of his daughters died in their 30s with TB that time. But he was, you know, very quiet. I remember one incident, my mother telling me that the stepmother, and she thought they were being very bold. And uh, when he came home, she said, they need to be chastised and he brought them up to the room and he took off his belt but he hit the end of the bed and they all roared (laughs) so that she thought downstairs they were being punished for what they had done wrong you know but he wouldn't have hurt them he wouldn't do anything like that he was just such a nice person they were very they were a very gentle family Mm. humble yes yeah, and caring and... Isn't it lovely to have such memories? It is. Mm-hmm. It is, definitely. Research from the largest offshore whale and dolphin survey ever conducted in Ireland was published recently. The Observe programme aimed to provide robust data with which to inform conservation management by assessing the importance of shelf edge habitats off Western Ireland for whales and dolphins. So it seems to be that blue whales are moving from feeding grounds to the north along the shelf edge, along the deep water off the west coast of Ireland to probably unknown breeding grounds. So here we are, the largest animal on the planet passing down annually in Irish waters but offshore so we didn't know until we put down these acoustic recorders. This acoustic study has provided real insights into the relative abundance of cetaceans within Irish waters. Simon Barrow is Chief Scientific Officer with the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group. Simon, an acoustic recorder, what on earth is that? What does it look like and how deep is it and how do you get it down and how do you get it back up? Acoustic recorders are exactly what it says in the tin. They just are recording sound. These are AMARs from a company called JASCO and it was funded by our Petroleum Affairs Division as part of their kind of oil and gas baseline environmental information. And we put them down in 2,000 metres of water 
which is very deep. And the reason we do that is it's very quiet. And the quieter the background noise, the further you can detect vocalising whales and dolphins. So at 2,000 metres of uh, water depth, we can detect a blue whale from 200 kilometres away. Now, are these suspended in mid-air sort of thing, or are they on the bottom? They're sitting on the bottom, and I'm old enough to be impressed by achieving the objective of putting a recorder on the seabed, going back in four months' time and bringing it back up again. So we work with the Marine Institute, the Celtic Voyager, and we put them on acoustic releases. So you throw them off the ship, they sink, they spend 20 minutes sinking, hit the bottom on an acoustic, uh, acoustic release. You go back four months later and you say, wake up, and it wakes up, and you say, release, and it releases. And the thing is positively buoyant, so it floats up to the surface. And you wait half an hour anticipating your expensive equipment to pop up to the surface, and there it is, and you download it, and you've got all these amazing recordings of whales and dolphins. And, of course, we knew Ireland was full of whales and dolphins, and we know even more now, and it's even more full of whales and dolphins than we ever thought. Well, now, this thing is open. It's listening to everything, all sounds that are coming in at all free frequencies and so forth. What's the range? Can it listen to something um, 10 kilometres away, 100 kilometres away? It can. Um, The thing about, it can only detect vocalising animals and the thing about blue whales is that they lose a very, very low frequency. So you're talking like 20 hertz. So we're talking about 4 kilohertz. So this is really, really low and low frequency sound travels a long, long way. So it's way below our hearing range. You need specialist equipment. So that's why we can detect them from up to 200 kilometres away. Whereas if you go to high frequency sound, things like harbour porpoises at 125 kilohertz, the detection range is very, very limited. So you can only literally pick them up from hundreds of metres of way. And they have to be vocalising. So this is a great way of detecting vocalising whales. It's only the males that vocalise. But you know, we're probably talking a steady flow of blue whales passing along the western seaboard, probably like 50 to 100 maybe moving down through the autumn and through the winter from the kind of northern feeding grounds. We also put some work in the porcupine sea bite and in recent years we've discovered a big concentration of fin and blue whales in the porcupine sea bite, actually quite close to shore. You're talking about 50, 60 miles offshore and this seems to be associated with krill, uh, northern krill. So when we have big concentration of northern krill, we have big concentrations of fin and blue whales and it's almost like we expect it now. So isn't it amazing that if you said to me, Simon, take me out to see blue whales, I think I know where I take you, and I think I know what time of year, and I think I have a reasonably good chance of finding them. So that's pretty exciting stuff. Finn and blue whales are very closely related. They would even interbreed, and there's even a case of fertile hybrids coming from such a union. Aren't there calls and sounds that different that you can tell reliably one from the other? They can, yeah. I mean, it is a challenge, uh, and we work with kind of clever, um, clever mathematicians who work at algorithms to detect the different sounds uh, and the different shapes of the sounds. So blue and fin whales are quite similar at around 20 hertz, but they have different shapes. The software can extract it from the Kusi recordings, and then you go and look at it with your eye and, and see, is it what I think it is? So it is technically quite challenging but there's better and better software available to screen these vast acoustic data sets and and acoustics is the way to monitor a lot of these things because you've got to remember in Ireland we have an obligation to monitor the population status and the migratory patterns of these whales and dolphins and if you're doing it on boats or on planes it's very very expensive whereas if you put down acoustic recorders it's much more powerful 
So it's important that we monitor whale populations and distribution and migratory pathways because we're actually legally obliged under EU law to protect the habitats and protect the species. So not only are we interested from managing islands offshore resources, but we have an obligation to protect them. Because just because a blue whale is 100 miles offshore, it's still an island. You know, island is 10 times the land mass. So it's a huge challenge to our government and to our managers to understand what is out there beyond the horizon. So we've always said a worm living at 2,000 metres in the rock or trough is as entitled as much protection as the woodlands of Wicklow and the bogs of Connemara. Now, the deliverable, what you get back from the recorder, is this something upon which you can print out sonograms or is it just a brief identifier of a particular call? I mean, how deep is the data? It was very deep. We have got terabytes of recordings, and so you can visualize it, you can do a spectrogram, but you might find it quite boring. You know, blue whales, it's just a line on a, on a spectrogram, and if you try to visualize what it sounded like, it would just be at a very low frequency for 20 seconds so it's not very exciting but it travels a long way and of course it's a way of them communicating with each other and also probably using it to navigate by bouncing it off submarine features and islands and stuff like that so we can validate everything and all that data that we collected is stored in the Patrolman Affairs Division and anyone can access it. Remember this was state funded and a critical part of state funding is that the data is available to everybody. So Richard, if you want to go and access the data, go and apply to access it and you can play blue whales while you're lying in your bed rolling you to sleep at night. Well, Simon, uh, you're listening into the whales, so when you go looking for them, you know where to go, do you? We do, but there's very few sightings. And it's funny, uh, when we're going out with uh, kind of young biologists, train them up, and they say, uh, well, how will I know when I see a blue whale? I say, you'll know when you see a blue whale, because they are huge. But we've literally had six sightings of blue whales in contemporary times until a colleague Mick Baines was out in the porcupine sea bite actually on a seismic vessel doing MMO work and they had something like 12 sightings of, of blue whales in the porcupine sea bite over a six week period and we'd only had six sightings in the previous I don't know 60 years so they are rarely sighted that's why you have to use acoustic methods it's a different tool to try and find out what they're there so I think it's really exciting to think that the biggest animal ever lived on this planet is out there just because we can't see them, they're out there and we have responsibility for them. So remember, Ireland stretches 200 nautical miles from its coastline. That's 22 million hectares of marine waters we're responsible for. You must have a better picture of blue whale behaviour and numbers and so on and so forth as a result of what you've discovered so far. Is there a trend developing? Is the blue whale prospering? I think it's too early to say blue whales are increasing, but the previous work estimated maybe up to 50 blue whales were passing along the western seaboard of Ireland. There's probably more, but maybe there were just better detections. Uh, I think the current estimate is something like only 1,000 blue whales on the North Atlantic, so they're still very, very rare. It's more a case of are they going to survive than are they going to increase. It would take a long, long time to work that out. But the fact that they're actually survived, the onslaught of whaling, the fact that, you know, we used to hunt them in Ireland. We killed 115 blue whales off the whaling stations in Mayo within 40 miles of the coast. So we're part of that whaling history, if you like. And now, you know, hopefully we'll become part of the whaling conservation. The blue whale was driven to the brink of extinction by commercial whaling. Today, it's one of the rarest whale species, and it's estimated that there are only between 10 to 25,000 individuals worldwide. Uh, from here, it takes me about 12 hours by car to get to, so it's over 1,000 kilometers. 
along the north shore of the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And if you look at a map, you will see uh, a big island called Anticosti Island up in the northern middle part of the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And we're on the, on the mainland just north of that. The closest point to the Anticosti Island is 18 nautical miles. Biologist Richard Sears has been at the forefront of blue whale research for more than 40 years. In 1979, he founded the Mingan Island Cetacean Study in Quebec, where he also started the world's first long-term observation of blue whales. The Gulf of St. Lawrence in general is a good place to, to study blue whales. In fact, there are, I just heard this morning, a few blue whales in the Gulf still amazingly at this time of year since it's uh, been very cold lately and so there's ice forming. Certainly from March, April to right around to November there are fairly good numbers of blue whales that uh, luckily for us come into the St. Lawrence so close to where we are. Uh, in Mingan in the 80s they were much more prevalent in the fall, not, not so much in their intervening years, although lately they've been starting to show up again in the fall in that area. But we work along the south shore as well, uh, in part of the St. Lawrence called the Gaspé Peninsula, and we work in the estuary, wherever blue whales go. I mean, these, you have to understand these animals roam all over the place. They sometimes come to a specific spot for a, a while, maybe a few days, maybe a few weeks, but uh, blue whales, as well as other species, will roam whole ocean basins. So it makes it much more of a challenge to study some of these larger rorquals. And we're just lucky enough that they happen to come to some places around the world, such as the St. Lawrence, where we're able to um, have access to them. The reality is, when it comes to blue whales, very little is known, and much of what we think we know is down to speculation and conjecture none of which has muted Richard Sears' total fascination with this utterly awesome, majestic beast. Well, actually, the, the best description would be, you know, from the surface, it's already, of course, quite large when you're near them, but you don't really get the full feel of the animal. I've been underwater with them, and, um, and sometimes in not great visibility, and you swim up right up next to them, and you just have a wall of animal right next to you, and you feel very, very small. And uh, and a great, not only is it a very uh, large on, on its uh, width, let's say, but also, of course, very, very long. And so I remember one time I swam up to uh, a blue whale in, in uh, Mexico, and, uh, you know, the head was way, way up ahead of me and the tail was back behind me. And I swam along the body of the animal a bit because it wasn't, luckily for me, it wasn't moving. It was sort of resting there. And then it noticed me and just sort of gently slipped down into deeper water. But it was, you know, just an amazingly uh, experience, an amazing size to, to, you know, to be near that animal. You, as I said, you, you seem very, you feel very, very small. Very insignificant, I imagine. Oh, yeah. I think they probably are not quite sure what we are sometimes, so they tend to probably go, well, I don't know what this thing is, so I'll just move on a bit. <laughs> but other times we've had calves, uh, you know, which are at that point about, probably about 10 meters long, and uh, the, we had a calf swim around us for two and a half hours once, and it would even get huffy if we got out of the water because those were the days where we still had to change our rolls of film. And uh, I remember just 
just hang around at the surface, of course, and the animal will come right up by, next to us and sometimes within a flipper length, and just you could see it looking right at you. So it was very curious. And its mother was didn't seem to be in the least worried about it playing around. She's probably happy. She says, well, it's found some toys to hang out with. And, <laughs> and uh, she was off a couple miles away with another blue whale and never showed up. They, they'll cover so much ground. They'll use whole ocean basins. For instance, we've been, in the last 27 years or more, we've been going to Iceland and, and uh, the Azores, and the main reason for that was to find out if the blue whales that were around Iceland or the Azores were, in fact, the same as the ones we see here. In other words, do some of the animals from the St. Lawrence make it up to those areas, which is, for a blue whale, is quite easy. You know, it's... Uh, it may seem like a great distance to us, and, but these animals will travel great distances and actually surprisingly quickly because they keep at it 24 hours at a time. And uh, what we've learned is that there is a core group of blue whales that come back year after year here in the St. Lawrence. I mean, there's some animals in, that we've known for nearly 40 years both females and males. And the reason why we know they're males or females is because we take biopsies of them, and that gives us a skin sample. And, and uh, from that, you can draw DNA, and uh, as is done with many other species. And so you also know the sex of the individual. Mm -hmm. We have that, and I decided to go to Iceland, and we found that actually none of the whales there were animals we knew. Then we decided to start going to the Azores, and at first, uh, the Azores were so, people there were so focused on sperm whales, because that's what they used to whale there with the help of New England whalers. And when I started asking around about blue whales, they thought, well, we don't really see blue whales here, uh, and I think they were more focused on the summer months. And in, in any case, I convinced the guy I knew that was doing some whale watching there to, to take us out in the spring in April, when it was a little bit rougher, but we, we did have a couple of days, and there were blue whales there. And so we built on that, and to the point where now we've been going back regularly for two or three weeks every spring. We try to hit it anyway, just at the moment where the rorquals are migrating by, going north uh, in that area. And so they stop in near these islands where they can get food, and we hope to get as many animals photo ID'd there as we can, and then we try to match it up to pictures we get from various people off Spitsbergen or Jan Mayen or Iceland or even Ireland, because we have, I think we have eight uh, different blue whales from the south coast of Ireland from some of the uh, people that work uh, in that area. I would bet that there probably are some blue whales off of there right now. Mm. Um, since you don't really have an ice problem, at least not that I know of. So I wouldn't be surprised that there are some blue whales. Uh, you know, they, they don't all necessarily migrate south, but what we do know is that the ones that do choose to migrate along the northeastern Atlantic, you know, the European side, they will go down as far as Mauritania or even Senegal, so northwest Africa. And that we have some proof. And one animal from there has matched up to the Azores and up to Iceland. We have other matches from many matches now from the Azores to Spitsbergen or Iceland. But we, there's a lot more work that needs to be done. And what surprised us the most was that we didn't expect to have more than tens or maybe at most 100 blue whales from the work we did in the Azores. 
In fact, I thought we'd probably be more like 30 or 40 different blue whales. But now we're approaching 800 blue whales from wow. the Northeast Atlantic. Yeah. Uh, that, those are animals that we've identified as individuals. Uh, and you add that to the 500 or so that we have from the nor- Western North Atlantic. Now, you've got to keep in mind that we've been doing this for 40 years over here, so there are invariably some animals that have died for different reasons. It could be ship strikes, it could be fishing gear, or it could just be natural causes. Uh, whereas the work that we've done in the uh, Northeast Atlantic, which is uh, over a lesser period of time and for much less effort deployed by us, we've got many more animals uh, identified. So it, it, it seems to say that blue whales are not quite in as bad a shape as we once thought. There may, in fact, be, you know, 1,000 to 2,000 blue whales in the Northeast Atlantic. I don't know. That's just a guesstimate. You know, it's not a proper estimate. You know, I think we killed anywhere from 325 to 370,000 blue whales My goodness. Uh, on the planet. Yeah, we. that's what's just amazing about humans is we almost wiped out a species without knowing much about its natural history at all. Matter of fact, most of the knowledge on blue whales was uh, gathered from biologists working on whaling vessels back in the beginning of the 1900s up till probably about 1950s or something like that. Then if you take out the war periods uh, where there wasn't much work being done, that was based on dead animals uh, the measurements and so forth, whereas people working in the field on live animals has been much more recent. And I believe last year was a bumper year for blue whale calves in St. Lawrence. Yeah, much to our surprise, we hadn't had more, what was it, 23, 24 calves in 40 years in the St. Lawrence or in the eastern Canadian waters, and I think you can include New England in that, certainly. And then all of a sudden last year, we had seven different calves. And what was even more interesting is that apart from one of the females that had a calf, the others were all extremely well-known. I mean, uh, there were two or three of them in that group of seven that we see almost every year. So why is it that we hadn't seen more calves? Well, that's a good question. Maybe there just was a reproductive, not failure, but not much reproduction going on for any number of reasons prior to that, or maybe the animals gave birth earlier, and by the time we saw the females in the St. Lawrence, the calves had been weaned and they were gone on their own because they don't stay more than seven to nine months with their mothers. So it was quite surprising because we made quite a jump in the numbers of of calves, but it's still very low. So what are we? We're around 30. We're still at only 31 calves in the St. Lawrence for all that of research effort. Whereas in the in the Azores, where we do see calves, we're already between the Azores and Iceland. We're already way above that number for much less effort. So that also would indicate that the animals in the Northeast Atlantic are somehow doing better, or it's a healthier population than the ones here. Also, you've got to remember, as I said earlier, that because some animals don't come in the St. Lawrence, there may be a whole bunch of blue mm-hmm. whales out there somewhere that have that calves see. that we just never see. But the, I, um, conversely, I would say that because there's so many uh, research teams that are run by people we know well that are working along the eastern seaboard, You'd think that, and and they do report blue whales to us, of course, when they see them, uh, send us pictures. 
And there just isn't that much evidence, at least in the shelf waters during the, the summer period of, of blue whales that we haven't already identified. So uh, it's doubtful that that there are that many other calves. And also some other surveys that have been carried out out of, in the Atlantic along the Newfoundland and Nova Scotia have not yielded any calves or even juveniles. Um, I would say that the reproductive level in, in these blue whales is quite low. And do you have any idea where their nurseries are? Because I know for the grey whale, which, if I'm not mistaken, makes the longest migration of any animal on the planet, something like 16,000 kilometres round trip from the Arctic right down the Pacific coast into the warm waters of Mexico to one of the nurseries there I've been to is San Ignacio Lagoon, which is a protected area, so it's very safe for them. There are several nurseries in that area, but at least you can actually see how many come there, several hundred each year, and count the calves and see which ones are giving birth and which ones aren't giving birth and what's going on. Can you see anything like that where you are in the St. Lawrence? These blue whales, they don't seem to have a specific area, as far as we know so far, where they go. We do know of a female that went as far as the Carolinas, just a little bit on the shelf, but very far offshore. Mm. So it's possible that that's an area where these animals give birth. And we were lucky enough with that. That was a satellite tag we had on a on a blue whale, and we were lucky enough to get six months from that tag, and, and the animal, we got the full migration south and back north again in, in uh, spring. But she didn't have a calf that year. But the fact that the, a couple females now, depend, uh, based on our satellite tag information, have gone down along that area. So it's very possible it's somewhere out there. But I think it's not... It's not like humpback whales or right whales or gray whales, certainly. It, 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 the breeding area doesn't seem to be quite as specific. Mm. They're very graceful in the water. I've seen a lot of video footage, but I'm just wondering, are they fast swimmers? Oh, yeah, they can swim fast. I think most of the time they choose to swim at about uh, three to four knots. I translate that probably into... Uh, that's probably about five to seven miles an hour or something like that. But if in the St. Lawrence, you can have, uh, they can take advantage of tidal fronts. And there are some places where tides, when they're uh, flooding, in other words, leaving the St. Lawrence, uh, where they can get up to six knots. So if an animal wants to move from one point to another, let's say over 70, 80 miles, um, it can take advantage of the current as well as its own locomotion and even double its speed. Are they deep divers? They can. I think it, well, in the St. Lawrence, first of all, it's not that deep, so they might get in, in, in the estuary, we've seen blue whales feeding in water as shallow as 30 meters. Um, most of the time, it's probably anywhere from a hunt, you know, surface to um, two to 300 meters, and in some places, they may get down as far as 600 meters here in the St. Lawrence. Now, if it's off the Azores, it depends on where the patches of euphosids are. And if I remember rightly, a fin whale in the Mediterranean had a tag on it, and it got down to around five or 600 meters. So these rorquals are certainly capable of diving deep, deeper, but not as deep as sperm whales or beaked whales. Now, I know we can't hear it, but I am told that the blue whale is one of the loudest animals on the planet. Can you explain that to me? Well, I'm not an acoustician, but yeah, they have a very, they have a very powerful um, 
very low frequency sound. And sometimes when we're seeing interactions between individuals at the surface, in other words, if there's a female with two males chasing after her or something like that, we can feel vibrations in the air. It's, it's, um, you, you can almost sense that sound is, it's, it's, a, it's a very odd feeling. And the first times that you notice it, you think you're just imagining it. But then when you look at the other people in the boat and everybody else is reacting the same way, you realize there's something going on. But yes, most of the time uh, underwater, you'd have to accelerate the sound. You know, that, that's what you do when you're analyzing the data. From what I understand, they, they even accelerate it 10 times to be able to hear it. And it's still very low uh, in, in frequency, but it's very powerful. And it permits them to be able to, to send out sound signals over, very, uh, over great distances in the water. Now, of course, there has to be another blue whale or, or whatever they're sending that sound mm. out to to be in the right place to pick up on that signal. But um, it's very possible in theory that blue whales can communicate over even thousands of kilometers. But they're not like orcas, killer whales, are they? They don't travel in pods. I have the impression of blue whales as being like, I suppose you could call them ocean loners. Well, it's a, it's a, I think it's also a question of scale. Now, the odontocetes do, such as orcas and pilot whales, sperm whales, they do choose to be in more uh, tightly knit pods. Uh, and that's part of their social makeup. Mm-hmm. Whereas these rorquals will probably travel in groups, but the groups can be spread out two to three miles apart, so it's not as obvious. But because they can communicate over such long distances, you know, Bob might be telling Bill over here that there's something going on, or maybe not. I mean, that's just an assumption. Maybe they don't care to talk to each other. But I presume if they have such vocalization uh, capabilities, they probably do. What appears to be a single blue whale may very well be a single blue whale in an area, but if one had the uh, presence of mind or the capabilities of looking around, you might notice that there are several others, but spread out over quite a large amount of water. And clearly, despite our best efforts to eradicate them, they seem to have discovered the secret to longevity. Must be the diet. 90 years are growing and more. Yeah, and maybe longer. Uh, who knows? I mean, I think it'll take another generation of biologists before we know that for sure. Because at this point, the oldest known blue whales, that doesn't mean we know how old it is, is one from the, that we knew from the Sea of Cortez. And the last time it was seen, uh, it gave us around 50 years of age. Now, that animal was already a mature animal when it was first sighted, so it could be much older. Mooney Goes Wild was presented and produced by Derek Mooney and is back at the same time next Monday night here on RTE Radio 1.